If you would please turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. When Dave Silvernail said he was going to preach on Revelation, I panicked because I don't understand Revelation. I have not made up my mind uh, what interpretive scheme I agree with. And uh, so I begged for an out, and uh, he very graciously gave me an out. So um, my next five messages here at our church starting today will actually be on the five solas of the Reformation. We'll let uh, Pastor Dave continue with uh, the book of Revelation, which I think he's doing a great job. And, and uh, if anyone could convince me of the idealist position, it's surely it's Dave. Um, we are reading Psalm 19 for our study of sola scriptura. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. If you would please put up the slide of the five solas. The reformers in the early 1500s summarized their beliefs with these five statements. Sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone. Sola fide, uh, by faith alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Uh, solus Christus, by Christ alone. And soli Deo, gloria, to the glory of God alone. And the solas were originally formulated in contrast with the beliefs of Roman Catholicism. That Roman Catholic Church taught that we obtain our beliefs from two different sources, from the Bible, yes, but also from church tradition. Uh, contra that, the Reformers said, no, we get our beliefs from the Bible alone and from no other source. Uh, Roman Catholicism taught a doctrine of justification by faith and works, that uh, you had to at least partially earn God's forgiveness. The Reformers said, no, justification is by faith alone. Uh, again, there was this idea of human merit present in a Catholic theology that if you were saved, to at least some extent, it was because you deserved it. Uh, the Reformers said, no, salvation is by grace alone. There is, there is no sense in which uh, the person who is saved earns it or uh, deserves it. Solus Christus, uh, the Catholic Church taught that there were many mediators between God and man, not just Jesus, but also Mary and uh, various saints and the Pope. That, and people would pray to these uh, mediators as well as to Jesus. And uh, it was said in response to that that no, Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. And finally, if these four are true, 
God must get all of the credit and glory for our salvation. Today we focus on the first of the five, sola scriptura. Thank you, you can turn that off. Sola scriptura. We get our beliefs from the Bible alone. This uh, sola is concerned with the issue of epistemology. How do we know what is true and what is false? Where do we obtain our doctrine? What source or sources should inform our worldview? Now, the answer may seem obvious. We get our beliefs, our worldview, our theology from the Bible alone. And yet, survey after survey shows that most American Christians actually disbelieve most of the Bible. You imagine someone going down the street, a reporter, he's got a microphone, and he finds someone and says, you're a Christian? Yeah, sure. And uh, uh, what do you think about the Bible? Ah, the Bible's great. Yeah, it's awesome. Okay. Uh, you believe the Bible? Sure, yeah, I believe the Bible. All right. But then the interviewer starts getting specific. Well, tell me, do you believe that hell is a place of conscious, everlasting torment that all who do not believe in Christ will go to for all eternity? Well, goodness, no, I don't believe that. Or uh, do you believe that homosexuality is a sin, that it's a choice, that it's not genetic, no one is born a homosexual, it's something people choose to do, and it is wrong to choose. It is wrong to make that choice. Well, no, no, of course, there's nothing wrong with homosexuality. Again, do you believe that before God made the world, he chose ahead of time whom he was going to save and whom he would not save? And the person says, goodness gracious, I don't believe in that. What on earth are you thinking? And that is the typical American attitude toward the Bible. Uh, yeah, sure, the Bible's great, until you get specific. And then you start realizing that actually people don't get their beliefs from the Bible alone. They get much or even most of what they believe from some other source. I believe in sola scriptura, and I believe it is actually the humble approach toward knowledge. Uh, the the person who says that we can decide for ourselves what is true and good and beautiful, I, I believe it's actually that person who is who's staking out what we may call an arrogant position, uh, going back to Genesis 3, that you get to decide what is good and what is evil, taking God's place. And in fact, this is a position of humility here to say, it is not for us to decide what is true or false. Uh, we will submit ourselves to the instruction of the scriptures. We will accept what the Bible says. Now, I ran into Sola Scriptura uh, very early on as a, as a Christian. I became a believer at the end of my freshman year of college. Uh, within a month, I was teaching my first Bible study, and I was in way over my head. I mean, I didn't know hardly anything about the Bible, but uh, i just become a believer. I was so excited, and uh, I was working at my college campus this summer as a research assistant in our chemistry department, and I started this uh, Bible study. Bible study, yes. Um, in my dorm, and I invited people to it, and several Christian students came, and several uh, non-Christian students came, and uh, after a few weeks, the, the students in my group got in this huge fight over whether or not Jesus was the only way to be saved, and the Christian students were, were saying, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, there, there's no other way, and the non-Christian students were saying, hey, Christians are so arrogant, who do you think you are? All religions are, are just as valid, you know, one religion is just as good as any other. Uh, what's the matter with you? And I had no idea. I mean, I was the leader of the small group, and, you know, I just watched them going back and forth, and I didn't know what to think. Because remember, just, just because you become a Christian doesn't mean, poof, you suddenly understand and believe everything in the Bible, all right? I mean, at that point, I still didn't believe most of the Bible, frankly. Uh, but I, I was just, I had no idea what to do, no, no idea what to believe. And I, 
you, you got you to uh, be gracious toward me. I've got a really bad migraine, and I'm having trouble thinking straight or speaking straight. So just uh, please extend me some extra grace here if I just can't put two words together in, in, uh, in good order here. Um, I knew I had to reach a decision on this question of whether or not Jesus was the only way. And I didn't know what to do. I wasn't part of a church. I'd just become a believer. And so I remembered that there was this farmer's market called Roots Farmer's Market in Mannheim. And I knew that every week that, that this farmer's market happened, and I knew there would be Christians there at that market because it's Lancaster, Pennsylvania, all right? And so in desperation, I drove to this market hoping that there would be a Christian somewhere that, that I could find and just ask, you know, what's the truth? I mean, what am I supposed to believe? Is Jesus the only way of salvation or not? And there was this old guy, Mr. Muma, who had this little Christian bookstore stuck in the corner there. And I just grabbed him and I, and I, I shared my problem with him. And he, he must have spent two hours going through the scriptures with me, just verse after verse. And, and I don't remember all the verses he shared. I'm sure he shared uh, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given to us by which we must be saved. And 1 John, he was the Son, has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And, and other verses like that. But all I remember is the one he shared from Romans 8, uh, a verse that says, he, if, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And for whatever reason, that's the verse that grabbed me. And I realized that this is what the Bible teaches. And it's not because we're arrogant. It's, it's because we do need a mediator. We do need someone between God and us. And there's only one mediator provided by God, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And so that man convinced me that night that, yes, that is what the Bible teaches. And so I had a choice. Do I hold on to what I believe, or my old belief from before I became a Christian, or do I accept what the Bible teaches? And I decided that night to accept what the Bible teaches and uh, to believe that Jesus is the only way. Now, I will say this, it would have been very helpful if those students in my small group had explained the sort of logic or rationale behind that, that, you know, that God is so holy and we're so sinful that there's nothing we can do to earn his favor, that there has to be a, a go-between or a mediator. So I had these students who knew what the Bible taught, but they weren't able to explain why the Bible taught that. Uh, so, but one way or another, God got me to, to actually believe what the Bible teaches, and, and that's, that's what we have to do. I mean, I'm hoping that as you read the Bible year by year, you're encountering things that you don't agree with or that you don't know. And then at those points, you have to make a choice. Am I going to submit myself to the scriptures, give up what I believe, and, and, and believe what the Bible says, or am I going to hold on to what uh, my culture says or just my own personal opinions? Why do we get our beliefs from the Bible alone? Because the Bible is perfect you look with me at Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Can I please have the next slide? To say that the Bible is perfect is to say these seven things about the Bible. We say that it is inspired, meaning that the men who wrote the Bible were led along by the Holy Spirit in the process of writing it such that the words that they wrote aren't the words of men, but actually the very word of God. We're saying that the Bible is inerrant or without error, completely true in everything it teaches. That the Bible is clear. Now, the, the actual traditional word for the Bible being clear is that the Bible is perspicuous. It's uh, obviously very ironic that the 
word that people use to emphasize biblical clarity is perspicuity, uh, but that's what it means. Uh, you know, I, I realize that you know, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and to search out a matter is the glory of kings. So obviously there is stuff in the Bible that's very hard, but the core teachings, the most important stuff, the, the stuff you need to be a believer and to, to follow Christ uh, is, is easily understood. And if you don't believe this, you, you haven't spent enough time with three and four-year-olds. And I am just amazed at what comes out of my four-year-old's mouth at devotions at the dinner table. I mean, there's times where, you know, I ask a question and she sort of gives an answer. And I'm like, well, I guess that's it. Time to pray. There's just nothing else I can add to it. From the mouths of babes, God has ordained praise. Uh, if a four-year-old can understand the gospel, anyone can. The Bible is sufficient meaning it speaks to every area of life. It's comprehensive. Uh, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no question or issue of life that the Bible doesn't speak to. The Bible is authoritative, meaning we actually have to believe and obey it. It is necessary. There's a, there's a great deal we can learn from creation around us, but there's stuff you absolutely have to know that's found nowhere else except in the Scriptures. And finally, it is effectual. It accomplishes its intended purpose, as God says, my word will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Now, leave that up, okay? A sola scriptura means that we get our beliefs from the Bible alone. So uh, ask me this question. Uh, Rich, why do you believe God made everything? Okay. Because the Bible says so. Okay. Uh, ask me this. Why do you believe God made a covenant with Abraham? Now you're good. Because the Bible says so. That's why I believe it. Uh, ask me this. Why do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Because the Bible says so. Now, ask me this question. Why do you believe the Bible is perfect? Because the Bible says so. Because the Bible says so. And let's just look at the first one up there, uh, biblical inspiration. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is God-breathed. They have nuptos. That uh, God uh, breathed out the scriptures. He used the writers of the scriptures to get the word out. And uh, the, the image we have in Ezekiel 2 and 3 is, is of him eating a scroll containing the words of God, and then he is told to go out and speak the words of God. So again, the idea is that he, he's not speaking his own mind, but the very words of God. Part of sola scriptura is getting your beliefs about the Bible from the Bible. Let me say that again. Part of sola scriptura is getting your beliefs about the Bible from the Bible. And I mean, why, why do I believe these things about the Bible? Because the Bible says it is inspired and inerrant and clear and sufficient and authoritative and necessary and effectual. That is what the Bible teaches about the Bible. Now, I realize that normally this would be circular reasoning or begging the question, However, that's not true in this case if the Bible actually is what it claims to be. If the Bible actually is the very Word of God, the highest authority we have on this earth, then it does make sense 
to say that we believe all these things about the Bible because that's what the Bible says about itself. And to, to sort of support this idea that we use the Bible to, to learn about the Bible, to prove the Bible, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. At my school, I'm responsible for leading devotions every morning. And I have been leading devotions on these doctrines of biblical perfection. And I've been repeating this idea with my students uh, day after day that we use the Bible to defend the Bible, to support it, that the Bible can attest to itself. And I have a teacher in there uh, who sits in, in the devotions, and I could tell that she was very skeptical of what I was saying. She's like, eh, I'm not really buying it. Until I taught this verse. And then she came up to me afterward and said, I get it. It was so exciting. It's this verse, Hebrews 6, 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. So if you ask God, why do you have the right to tell me what to do? What's God going to say? Because I say so. Okay, since he is the highest authority, there's no higher authority to which we can appeal. If the Bible is what we're saying it is, there is no higher authority to which we can appeal when discussing it or trying to decide what to believe about it. And uh, if you could just allow me to make just a quick little tangent here uh, on a, a common logical fallacy that Christians make when trying to defend the Bible. Uh, let me share an argument with you. It's a hypothetical syllogism. If it is October, then it is fall. It is October, therefore it is fall. Valid? Yes, that's a valid argument. Okay, yes, mm -hmm. good, okay. Now, I'll share an invalid one with you. If it is October, then it is fall. It is fall, therefore it is October. That is invalid. If it's October, it has to be fall, but just because it's fall doesn't mean it has to be October. The fallacy I just committed there is calling affirming the consequent. Now, this is what Christians do all the time. If the Bible is inerrant, then it is historically accurate. And then they use other sources to prove that the Bible is historically accurate, uh, other historical documents, archaeology, whatever, and they say, therefore, it's inerrant. That's affirming the consequent. That is a fallacious argument. Okay, if the Bible's inerrant, it does have to be historically accurate, but just because it's historically accurate doesn't mean it's inerrant. There are lots of historically accurate books in the world. Please don't use a fallacy to defend the Bible because, you know, non-Christians aren't stupid. You know, they'll smell something fishy. These other documents, these other sources of knowledge or truth are not an authority above the Bible. They're an authority below the Bible. Those historical documents don't prove that the Bible is true. The Bible proves whether or not those documents are true or false. Why do I believe these things about the Bible? Because the Bible says so. It teaches it's inspired. The Bible teaches that it's inerrant. Psalm 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. The Bible is clear. Psalm 119, verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So if, if you're, according to this verse, the simple person is capable of reading the Bible and gaining understanding from it. The Bible is sufficient. 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. The Bible is authoritative. Psalm 119.7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. And is this all law? 
Well, in the sense that it's all commands, no, it's not all law. But in the sense that it is a word from our king, and we have to believe and obey all of it, we have to submit to all of it, in that sense, it is all law. And that's why the word law is used to refer to all of the scriptures, not just the commands. The Bible is necessary, Romans 10, 14 and 15. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. There is no other way to learn about Jesus. There's no other way to learn about the gospel except through the Bible. And finally, the scriptures are effectual. God's word will accomplish what he desires and achieve the purpose for which he sent it. Isaiah 55, verse 11. Now, in uh, previous sermons in the last year, I've discussed biblical inerrancy and biblical sufficiency. So this morning, I'd like to focus on two other ones, authority and necessity. You can go ahead and turn that slide off now. The Bible is authoritative, and the Bible is necessary. I love asking uh, questions of my seventh graders. I don't think they realize how much I'm picking on them. But uh, I'll ask them, what is the gospel? And the answers I get are just truly shocking. Uh, what is Christianity? Uh, you know, it's not like I rub their nose in the fact that they're ignorant, but it just never ceases to amaze me that, because these are, all, these are all covenant kids. I mean, they're all growing up in the main evangelical reformed churches in Northern Virginia, and their ignorance is just awe-inspiring. Um, I'm always amazed when I ask him this question, do you have to obey the Bible? You know what the normal answer I get is? The normal answer I get is no. They, they sort of look at me with this, this look on their face, confused, surprised, and they say, well, of course not. They do not believe in the authority of the Bible, meaning we actually have to believe it. You have to. You have to obey it. You have to. I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, the uh, Evangelical Free Church's Seminary in Chicago. It is not a reform school. It is an evangelical school. And uh, many of the professors there uh, were among the leaders in establishing the Danvers Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And so the, the professors there were very committed to the inerrancy of the Bible. It is completely true. And it never ceased to amaze me how many of those professors would turn around in the same class and attack biblical authority. You know, that, that they would just come up with uh, argument after argument about why we don't have to believe this or obey that. And it just seemed to me that they were ending up in the same place where liberals end up. I mean, the liberal says, we don't have to believe it or obey it because it's false. And, and the students and professors at my school, many of them are saying, we don't have to believe it or obey it because even though it's true, it's irrelevant. It has no authority over us. And uh, ever since then, I, I've had my ears out for all the arguments that people use to try to affirm inerrancy while at the same time denying biblical authority. All right, and here's a partial list of the things I have heard over the years. Excuses people make for why they don't have to believe and obey what's in the Bible. Excuse number one, we only have to take the New Testament seriously. If it's in the Old Testament, don't have to believe it or obey it. That teaching or command, whatever it is, was for them. Back those people back then not for people today. And by the way, do, do you know what book in the Bible people say that about the most? More than any other book, that was just for them, it's not for today. 1 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians. 
Ironically, what is the only book in the New Testament that repeatedly says what's in it is not just for them, but for all the churches? 1 Corinthians. Very, very interesting. Another excuse people make for denying biblical authority. They say the Bible is only about spiritual things. It's for about, it teaches you how to go to heaven, but in all the rest of life, i.e. most of life, uh, the Bible has nothing binding or authoritative to say we're free to do and think what we want. The Bible is only for individuals. It has nothing to say to the church, the family, or the state. God doesn't get the implications of my obedience to the law. In other words, he, he doesn't understand what's going to happen to me if I actually believe that or if I actually do it. If he did get it, if he did really understand the consequences, of course he wouldn't expect me or require me to believe and obey it. So because he doesn't get it, therefore I don't have to do it. If you really, 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 really want to do something, then it's okay. In, I, I get this all the time. Uh, in, in other words, uh, people sort of insert a phrase behind each one of the Ten Commandments, and the phrase is, if you want to. Okay? Uh, you will have no other gods before me as, as long as that's what you want to do. And you will, you will not make for yourself an idol as long as that's what you want to do. And you're, you're not allowed to murder as long as that's okay with you. And they just sort of fill that in. And it, and it clouds or covers everything they read in the Bible, and they just understand it differently. They don't understand it as authoritative. They have this attitude instead. If I really, 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 really want to believe something different or do something different, then obviously it's okay. Here's a difficult one, and it's very subtle. They redefine inerrancy. They redefine it to say that, like, for example, when we're reading Romans, they would say what we have in Romans is an accurate picture of what Paul really wrote and what he really believed. Okay, sort of this sophistic twisting of the word inerrancy. So they would say, yes, absolutely, I believe in inerrancy. They don't mean the same thing. They just say, yes, we know that's what Paul believed, and we know that's for certain what he wrote, but we don't know if it's true, and therefore we don't have to obey it. Um, by the way, what I'm doing here is, uh, help me out. Preaching, thank you. Uh, <laughs> ways that people deny the authority of the Bible while still affirming inerrancy. So these are things that evangelicals are saying. Yes, I believe in inerrancy. No, I don't actually have to believe or obey the Bible. How do they get away with that? Using these excuses. Here's another one. Uh, they have a false definition of human inability. It's terrible. I teach the doctrine of total depravity in, at my school, and that means that uh, you know, we're completely sinful. And so my students ask, so that means we can't obey the law, right? We're, we're powerless. We're unable to. And this little sparkle gets in their eyes. <laughs> and they're like, I found the perfect excuse. Thank you so much. You know, I can just go back on that everything. I, I'm not able to. I'm not able to obey. When we say that you're not able to obey, what we mean is you don't want to obey. God never commands something that you can't do, all right? So just, just be clear on that. Total depravity means you don't want to obey. You can if you want to. Here's one I hear a lot. My church or pastor says it's okay. I've prayed about it. I have a peace about it. 
I only have to obey and believe those things that would not cause me personal hardship. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is an authority over us. If you don't want to believe what it says, you still have to. If you don't want to do what it says, you still have to. It is law, every word of it, the binding word of our King. We must humble ourselves before it. Oh, uh, if you would, I'd, I'd like to take just a little break before I uh, discuss uh, biblical necessity. I wanted to give you a few practical tips for Bible usage. Since I'm trying to affirm the doctrine of sola scriptura, we get our beliefs from the Bible alone. Obviously, it makes sense to have a Bible and use it. Uh, so here's, here's a few practical tips that I want to suggest to you. First of all, I recommend that you get a Bible that will last. A Bible that will last. First of all, that means uh, a signature binding. It's sewn in. You can tell a book with a signature binding because it has threads in it. Okay? Uh, signaturely, a book bound that way can last 10, 15 years. I encourage you to get a, a Bible with, a high, with high quality paper and also paper that is fairly thick. And the reason for all of that is, is that you can then go and underline verses and you can remember where verses are. And if you, if you have the same Bible year after year, what happens as you underline verses and use that same Bible? You become very familiar with where things are. It's very easy to find them. And also, because you're, you're comfortable with that book, uh, you feel more and more willing to actually open it. Uh, many people are scared of their Bible. It's, it's a very intimidating book. And if you're using the same one constantly, it takes a lot of that uh, discomfort away. I encourage you to take notes in your Bible. I urge you not to use a study Bible as your primary Bible. Uh, study Bibles are great. If, if you have a study Bible here, may I challenge you to not do that? Okay, because study Bibles are designed to short-circuit the thinking process. Okay, God wants you meditating on His Word day and night. And, if, and what, what I've seen is that a, a Bible full of notes, people read a verse, and what's the first thing they do? They look down at the note. All right? And that is not God's desire for you when you're reading the Scriptures, to just go look down at the note. His desire for you is for you to meditate on the Scriptures. And if you don't understand it, what are you supposed to do? Look at a note? No, Scripture interprets Scripture. You're supposed to go somewhere else in the Bible to try to help you understand it. Now, I'm not dissing study Bibles. I, I use them all the time. They're very helpful. But it should not be the main Bible that you use. I uh, encourage you to use a translation that you can actually understand, but do not use a paraphrase. And, and I really urge you of this. If you have a paraphrase Bible that you're bringing to church, please, please don't, okay? And don't use that as, as your Bible, all right? Please use an actual translation of the Scriptures. Again, paraphrases have their place, just not much of a place. <clears throat> Your Bible should be easily accessible. And, and that's uh, one reason I don't like cases. Like people put their Bible in a case uh, because it takes longer to get to. And some, I can't tell you how many trillions of people, trillion, that's too much, millions of people you know, over the years have not read their Bible because it was too much of a hassle to pull it out and unzip it. All right? So you should time yourself. From the moment someone says, turn to such and such a verse, click, how long before you're at that verse? You know, if it's more than, I don't know, eight to 10 seconds, then your Bible is not easily accessible. And, and often what's going to happen is that you just decide not to read it at all because it's a hassle to open it up. I beg you in the name of Jesus, do not use a red letter Bible. Red letter Bibles are put out 
For whom? For whom? For liberal Christians. Because liberal Christians think that that Jesus, this great moral teacher, is, is what Christianity is all about. And so we're going to look at the words of Jesus so we can become moral or good people, and the rest of the Bible doesn't really matter. And that's why red-letter Bibles are put out. Uh, is, is Psalm 19 also the words of Jesus? Yes! Because the second person of the triune Godhood has existed for all eternity. He, Jesus, is the one who wrote this and said it every bit as much as the stuff in red in the New Testament. Okay? To put some in red is to attack the doctrine of the Trinity. To say that no, Jesus is not the second person of the eternal triune Godhead. That somehow the stuff in red is more the words of Jesus than everything else. And that is not true. It is all the words of Jesus. It is all, every bit as much the words of Jesus as the stuff in red. And let me say something else about red letter Bibles. The human eye cannot read red on white very effectively. Okay, so you're actually taking the words of Jesus and making them harder to read. Makes no sense. I would encourage you to have a large enough print to your Bible. I require my students to actually have large print Bibles at school. It's very helpful. Please use the same Bible everywhere you go. Don't have one Bible at church, one at school, one for Sunday school, because again, as you keep using the same Bible, you'll become more and more familiar with it, know where the verses are, and grow in comfort. And let me just finally urge you always to open your Bible. Never settle for following along on a handout or a screen. And if you're a Sunday school teacher, again, may I just beg of you, if, you're, if your handout or worksheet or whatever has the Bible passage on it, please don't hand it out. At least not right away. Please make your students open their Bible and read it. And then after you hand that sheet out, hide the scripture on it, black it out, cover it, burn it. Whatever you have to do, at, at all costs, you want to avoid, to, during, it, during Sunday school, you want to avoid the student looking at the passage on the paper. You, the, your goal is to have them looking at the passage in the Bible, all right, throughout the whole class, not just at the beginning. Do whatever you have to do to make that happen, because, because again, it, it encourages or produces that sort of familiarity with the scriptures. Okay, those are practical tips. Uh, obviously, the Bible doesn't uh, say to do all that. That's just my personal opinion. You're, you're free to disagree with me, but uh, if you follow some of those points, I think it will be um, very helpful to you and those around you. All right, uh, just briefly, let's touch on the doctrine of biblical necessity. The Bible is actually necessary. Look with me again, please, at Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Verse 1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. According to this, can we learn something about God without the Bible? Absolutely. We can learn about God without the Bible. Theologians call this general revelation. General revelation. From studying the creation around us and from studying man in particular, since man is made in the image of God, there is a great deal that you are able to learn about God. Indeed, so much that Romans 1 and 2 says that all men are without excuse. In other words, when, when someone who's never heard about Jesus or the Bible dies, that person can't go to God and say, well, I never knew. I never knew who you are or, or what you required of me. No, according to Romans 1 and 2. We learn enough from the creation to hold us liable before God, to hold us guilty, to render us without excuse. Every person who dies and goes before God in judgment, God can say to them, you did know who I was from what I made, from what I did. You did know what I required of you, the basic requirements of the law, and you fell short of that. We say that general revelation has authority enough to damn, 
but not enough to save. General revelation, what you learn about God from nature, from man, is enough to damn you, but it's not enough to save you. To actually learn about Jesus, you have to go to the Bible. And it's interesting that that God didn't actually have any Roman historians record anything about Jesus, nothing significant about him anyway. I think God did that very deliberately so that we had nowhere else to go. We have to go to the scriptures to find out enough about Jesus to be saved. We we learn the gospel from the scriptures. There's a great deal more that we learn from them as well. Stuff that we need. uh, My old youth group at my last church, every child in it was a public school kid except for mine. And I I had this personal catechism that I ran with them. So many, many weeks I'd just look at my youth group and say, what did you learn about the Bible this week? And And they knew the answer. We learned that the Bible is irrelevant. We learn that the Bible is irrelevant because for 35 hours a week, we've been taught that we do not need the Bible to understand the world around us. We do not need the Bible to understand history or literature or math or science or art, that these things we're capable of understanding and doing just fine without God speaking to us. That's what we were taught. And according to this doctrine of biblical necessity, that is wrong. The Bible is necessary. We actually need the Bible to understand English, history, math, science. And, you know, I wish I could say Christian schools are better. But, you know, just because my school has a Bible class, whoopee-doo-dah, does that make us a Christian school? I mean, having a Bible class isn't what makes a school a Christian school. It's it's using the Bible in all the other classes that makes it a Christian school. I I remember years ago subbing for a sick teacher, and uh, we were on a science lesson, and a student asked a question, and it was a good question. I said, everyone pull out your Bibles. And they all just stared at me. I said, this is science class. And I have to say, I I just got so angry because I realized I was paying for nothing. You know, I'm paying to send my kid here so that they learn how to think biblically, but they're being trained to think the same way as everyone else. Meaning I have Bible class and that's here, but then when I get on with all the rest of life, I don't need the Bible. I can understand all this stuff in my various subject areas just fine without the scriptures. Ooh, it made me mad. Tell me something, students. Should we have history class? If so, why? What events should we study? What methods should we use in studying them? What philosophy of history should we use to interpret the past? What should we do with the historical information we acquire once we have it? In other words, how should we apply it? What is historical revisionism? Why do non-Christians engage in historical revisionism? Should we fight their attempts at historical revisionism? If so, why and how? All of those questions I just asked can only be answered from one place. The Bible. You need the Bible to know the gospel. You need the Bible to know everything else. You need the Bible in every area of life to understand it, to benefit from it. Without the Bible, you can't answer any of those questions I just asked. Without the Bible, your history class is a waste of time. The Word of God is perfect. 
That is why we get our beliefs from the Bible alone. Let us pray. God Almighty, we thank you that you have spoken to us and that you have had these words of yours recorded for our benefit. I pray that you would indeed help us to submit to your word, to submit to it in every area of life, to believe it, to obey it, to be a people of the word. Not that we worship the Bible, Lord, but that we might exalt you, the God who spoke it, and indeed that we might exalt your Son, who is the word of God incarnate, Lord Jesus. May we be a people of the word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.